And so that's how I separate, not are you great today, but are you on a path? Are you improving to become better for tomorrow? Because even if you were perfect for today, whether the conditions change or your role changes, automatically you won't be perfect for tomorrow. You are listening to the Future Proof Operations Podcast. The manufacturing sector is evolving and the work that happens on the front line is the key to driving future readiness. On each episode, we bring you conversations with global leaders in industrial companies. Our goal is to discuss trends, stories and people in digital manufacturing and offer the latest insight into solutions. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources at operationsone.com. I'm your podcast host, Benjamin Brockman. This episode is brought to you by Operations One. Operations One is the leading platform to bring operations to a new level of excellence. By supporting frontline operations from planning to execution to analytics, companies benefit from an empowered workforce, increased operational excellence, and future-proof operations. Visit operationsone.com for more information. Hi, Jamie. Welcome to the Future Proof Operations Podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad to be a guest. Jamie, could you give me a 60 seconds overview of who you are and what you are doing? Sure. I've been in sort of the lean space one way or the other for 30 years, often leading inside companies, ran a lean consulting firm for 15 years. But today, I just run a solo advisory practice. So I spend most of my time advising executives and directors and others, part coach, part thought partner, part just advisor and educator, better decision-making, better leadership, culture building, things like that. So I uh, work with a wide range of different companies and I uh, try to leverage my 30 years of lean thinking experience. You are very passionate about people, especially about their skills to solve problems. You actually wrote a book about it. Why are you excited about that topic? Well, I sort of feel that people and their capabilities is the only real competitive advantage that companies have today. Software, technology, assets, even market position, they're all acquirable one way or the other, hard to defend. Somebody else can just pay for them. Positions change sometimes very rapidly. It's hard to just get a dominant position in a market and then stop as things change so fast now. And so the ability of people to be creative, to work together, to find new ways through challenges is, you know, unique. And so the company's ability to leverage that, get the most out of that, as well as what people get out of it through their engagement, their excitement, their commitment is, again, the only true competitive advantage, in my opinion. Why is it important to write a book about problem-solving skills today? What are we doing wrong nowadays when it comes to problem-solving? I think there's two main problems that I see, which is why I decided to write the book. And honestly, my attitude on writing books, even when I wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to Lean 15-some years ago with Andy Carlino, I looked around at other books and said, what's not being talked about? And so those were the topics we included at that time. Same thing with people solve problems. And so I saw two main problems or challenges or limitations with problem solving. First is that 
company by company all over the world, people focus too much on the tools and the tools, the templates, and, oh, we're going to do Six Sigma, or we're going to do A3 or 8D or whatever it is, and really think that that was the difference maker. But if I go look at the best problem solvers I know, all of them use different tools from each other, and yet they use the same tools as some of the worst problem solvers. So clearly the tools aren't the real difference maker. The second basically barrier that I saw people falling into is thinking they can train their way through this. Problem solving is deeply embedded in how we think. We start doing it as tiny little children. We develop some good habits and some bad habits of problem solving throughout our growth as human beings into adults and as professionals. And so just to train your way through that is short-sighted. And so really looking beyond the tools, looking beyond the training, this is where almost all of the focus goes in most books, in most conversations, in all of these practices. And so I wanted to look at where the real advantages were and that were not talked about. So that's why I decided to write this book. Super interesting. You named some words like Lean and Six Sigma. What is your personal connection to the manufacturing space, to the shop floor, to people and factories? I know you have some experience on that. Yeah, I mean, I literally grew up on the manufacturing floor. I started when I was 10 years old shoveling machine chips in a machine shop. So I did that. I cleaned bathrooms. I was just in the factory floor and I learned to write, run machine tools and write machine code eventually. And I spent a lot of years in leadership roles in manufacturing sites, Harley Davidson, Chrysler, to name a couple. I was a materials manager at Harley. A lot of the different roles I played at Chrysler, I spent a lot of time. I wore out a lot of different boots, literally walking the factory floor. And so, you know, manufacturing is not unique, but is special. And you can't do it without people. As much as we've tried to do sort of lights out manufacturing with automation to the final stretch, and it takes discipline, commitment, or rigor in manufacturing to execute every day, every shift, every hour. And a lot of different skills have to come together to make that happen. And throughout my consulting and advising career, I've worked with over 300 companies, many of which are manufacturers, ranging from you know, semiconductors to automotive to food manufacturing and everything in between. So I've walked hundreds of different factories and worked with thousands upon thousands of people on factory floors. Yeah, that's super interesting to dive deeper into this, because when I see the manufacturing space, I see a lot of tools a lot of frameworks, a lot of processes. And you say, when we talk about problem solving or the problem solving skill, it's not about the tool, it's more about the people. And as I understand you, you see four specific domains, which you name in your book as well, which are connected to problem solving. Which are they in a nutshell? Yeah, so I write one chapter about the tools don't matter and they still do, right? So I do make it clear, don't throw the tools away but I quickly move on to these four categories. And the first two are really centered around the problem solver. And that is the behaviors we bring to the table, how we behave, how we show up, the culture in a nutshell, and the capabilities, which transcend the problem solving tool. The same capabilities and skills you see in one tool set can be the same as the other. And they can also be the same capabilities without any tool set at play. So those two center around the problem solver. Then the other two categories are really around enabling the problem solver. So one is coaching. 
And I could have embedded this as just a chapter, but I feel it's so important in problem solving because we have so many different types of problems, so many different barriers that it takes coaching to help people learn their way through this over long periods of time. And so dedicate a whole section of what good coaching looks like around problem solving. And then the last section of the book is around the role of the leader. We kind of, going back to problem solving training, most problem solving training starts with, you've decided to solve this problem with this tool. Now let me teach you what to do. But there's a lot that happens before you even decide to do that. And having the right environment, establishing the culture, having the systems to manage the problem landscape and prioritization, helping frame problem solving. These are all the things that the leader, and when I say leader, it could be a frontline supervisor all the way to a CEO. But what does the leader need to do to enable a good problem solving ecosystem? None of those are really about the tools, but whether you use tools or not, all four of those categories help make the problem solving that much stronger. Today, I would like to discuss these domains and bring them into the context of the factory. How can people working in manufacturing companies be empowered to solve problems? And I would like to go through your domains, talk about them in a little bit more detail, and then connect them to some stories or use cases you saw in your experience. So bring them to real life of the manufacturing company or of the shop floor. So let's start with the first one. Yeah, so the first one around capabilities, which, you know, you're not going anywhere without those, no matter how many tools and templates you have. And again, these are the tools and templates that are these capabilities come to life before you ever pick up a tool or a template. So let me start with the first one, just because it's perhaps the one that we take for granted, and that's problem statements. So let me give you two quick examples of around, especially in manufacturing, where this can go wrong. One is that we like to gather lots of data fast. And in manufacturing, there often is a lot of need to capture information about a lot of problems. So we'll categorize those problems. We'll start to bin them and collect data on them. But just right out of the gate, when you start to do that, you have started to frame different problem statements. And so what we'll see I don't want to say nine times out of 10, but way too often is the biggest category will be miscellaneous. There'll be another category because we really didn't do a good job framing problem statements to even collect the initial data. So we'll have three problem statements that have some occurrences and then this other category that has all the volume, which means we don't even understand it well enough to build a chart around what the different problem statements are related to what we're trying to study. So we'll see that on the manufacturing floor time after time after time. A more specific example of going into problem solving is I was working with a team many years ago around cross-training in the organization. And so they wrote a problem statement around the speed of cross-training. They wanted to make cross-training more efficient, thinking if they just got more of it done, they would be more flexible as a site. So They started there and they just assumed that problem statement was the right problem statement. So we started working on it, working on it, working on it. And as we dug into it a little further, what we realized was that if we made the speed of cross-training throughout the site much faster, it would have almost no impact. The reason was that the real problem statements were about what happens when somebody moves into a new team or shifts over to help a different team and help maybe remove a bottleneck or fill a gap. 
One is that when they show up into a different part of the factory, they got the worst task that that team had to offer. They didn't get the best. They didn't get the middle. They got the one thing that that existing team didn't want to do. And so as a result, nobody wanted to, there was high resistance to moving over and being flexible. Second, when it came time for reviews and bonuses and any merit raises, you got measured on how deeply you knew your own tool set. So there was no incentive. My financial incentives were all built around never leave your tool set, never leave your home base in the manufacturing site. And so when we really looked at why we can't be more flexible as a factory, they selected the wrong problem statement. They should have worked on what happens when somebody moves over and how do we incentivize not the problem statement of how fast we can train people. And how important is they spent months working on the wrong problem. Okay. So you mean before I will be able to solve a problem, I need to be able to write a problem statement to state the problem in the right way. And to do that, I need to have the capability. I need to train that, right? Yes. Any capability development has to have a feedback loop. Whether that's, you know, we'll talk about coaching and other things. So whether that's a grade, whether that's evaluation, whether that's even testing your problem statement to see if it really will make a difference and really is the right problem statement. To develop any capability, you need a feedback loop. This is why golf has a practice range. This is why we have coaches and trainers that help us improve our golf swing so that we can swing the club many times and get feedback around whether it's working not just swing it a few times on the golf course and hope it goes well. So developing that capability, whether it's inside a tool or outside a tool is really important because quite frankly, we do most of our problem statement development in regular meetings, daily huddles, weekly ops reviews, things like that. That's where we start framing the problem. It's not after we pick up the tool. So if we don't have that capability at that moment, That conversation, that opportunity to frame the problem well with a good problem statement can be lost and can cost you months and hours of effort. Sticking with your first example with the workers in the factory, they have to categorize problems and you say they probably don't have the capability to do that in the right way. What did you do at that time or what would you suggest to improve their capability? in a very concrete manner. So what should the workers do? What should their supervisor do to teach them the skills? Well, I think what you have to start doing is looking at, so let's just take that data set. You're looking at maybe all the failures you have that cause you to have an idle machine. So let's just use that example. We have an idle machine. What are all the causes of that idle machine? It really helps to break down the problem and look at what are all the contributing factors to that. And are they really the same? Essentially start to look at, will the solution be many different solutions or one single solution? Even if we don't know what it is yet, you have to develop that insight through practice, through coaching, through repetition. So if you say my equipment was starved for uh, material shortages, well, material shortages that come from the warehouse is a very different cause and solution than material shortages that come from the upstream operation. Those are, one is a machine that's in our control and it's maybe starving us. The other is how we move material from the warehouse and select the right materials at the right time and bring them to the operation. Those are two very different 
I've starved my equipment for material. And so if you don't collect, if you don't frame them as separate problem statements and you start collecting data on it, you still have no idea how to develop and head towards a solution. So really poking at the problem statements and the breakdown of the problem to really see, are these all one problem or are these different problems? That probing, that challenging, that tearing apart is really how we get smarter about how we frame that problem. Okay, got it. So first takeaway, the people need to have the capabilities to solve problems and probably I as a company need to invest in coaching them and training them. Let's go to the second domain, the second topic. Yeah, so the second topic is the behaviors. And I like to say with problem solving tools, again, if you have all the tools in the world and all the capabilities in the world, if you never decide to pick up that tool, it's not going to do you any good. And that decision is a behavior, right? That doesn't happen automatically. A human has to decide, oh, today I'm going to solve this problem in a structured way. And so how we behave is both individually and collectively matters a great deal. So, so let me use a collective example. And that's really around problem solving being a collaborative process. Do we collaborate early and often through problem solving? So why this is important, I like to call problem solving a contact team sport. It's a team sport, meaning it's much better when done together. As a soccer fan, it's a really hard thing to go do by yourself. You can do a little peepee up in the backyard, but it's much better with a team. But it's also a contact sport. We have to challenge each other throughout the process to make it better. But where it gets really important is when we have to collaborate across teams. So let's just stick with that example I gave earlier, the data set for argument's sake of we're starved for material from the warehouse. Well, I probably need a combination of the team that's starved for material, the material handling team, and maybe even the planning team. Right? I might have to take three teams and put them all together. And so the importance of collaboration is the way this works in most cases, the way that we naturally solve this problem behaviorally is I'll look at the problem, how I experience it, and I will develop what I think the solution is. And then I will go ask the other department, please go do this. Not very collaborative, right? We bring collaboration in only at the end when we're asking somebody to accept our solution but we've misaligned the whole way through. So as an example of this failure, I was coaching a team years ago. We were looking at their A3 problem solving tool and their particular problem. And they said, we're really frustrated because we don't know why we can't get our solution accepted. So we went through this problem effort and we looked at their analysis. We looked at their solution generation. We looked at their data gathering. We looked at their testing at the end. We looked at everything and it was like, you know, you guys have done a really good job with your problem solving. And, you know, I didn't ask this early enough, but I then finally said, does the other group agree that the problem statement you wrote is in fact a problem? And they said, no, they acknowledge that it's a true. They don't acknowledge that it's a problem. Well, of course, you're not going to get someone to agree to change. They don't even agree. It's like trying to get someone to quit smoking that doesn't think that their smoking is a problem. They aren't looking for a solution. They're specifically not looking for a solution. So you need to get that alignment first. So the behavior of collaboration is as soon as you see a problem that involves other people, other functions, other teams, maybe even other companies, you first go and begin that collaboration. It requires an openness. It requires a vulnerability. 
It requires the willingness to learn throughout the process. And right up front from the problem statement, we take this problem statement, we see it from two different sides. So I see it this way, you see it a different way. The best answer is how we put those two views together to make a better problem statement. So right from the start, we want that collaboration and throughout the process. It's not about shared work. It's not about shared burden. It's about coming along together so we develop at a shared, committed solution. When you talk with companies, with industry experts, do you think this is already happening in the right way or is there a long way to go? When we talk about collaboration, are we too much focused, too much ego player or are we already collaborating in the right way? No, I think collaboration is one of those behaviors that has a long way to go. And one of the reasons is that we overvalue speed. Now, speed's important, right? I mean, you know, you have a manufacturing problem where I owned a problem once that had 2,000 people sitting on their hands doing nothing. There's a lot of urgency. And I may not solve that problem in that moment, but I do need to resolve the symptom and get the factory moving again. So speed is important. I don't want to discount it, but we overestimate speed and its value over the ability to implement correct or useful, effective solutions. So what happens is we look at a problem and we go, well, which is faster, me doing it by myself or me trying to get a bunch of people and bring them along together? Well, of course, me doing it by myself is faster. If we measure success as coming up with an answer, I've written down a solution. If we measure success by writing down a solution, doing it by ourselves is absolutely faster. But if we measure success by the time in which we implement a successful solution, well, then collaboration is a much faster path. It's slower to begin with, but when you get to the end, you move much faster because you've come along together, you've brought in other views, you brought in other perspectives that perhaps make sure that the solution actually works. And so when we measure success of implementing a successful solution, collaboration is far, far greater. So When we have a misbalance between the evaluation of success, it's really easy to say, hey, I've written down the solution. They just won't accept it. I've done my part. So we declare success, even though we're really not successful at that point. That's, I think, what helps drive the wrong behavior. And again, my boss will be someone in my silo, in my function. So am I protecting our team? But in the end, the customer doesn't care you know, which team failed or how many teams failed together. They didn't get what they wanted. They didn't get it on time. They didn't get it at quality. In the end, we either all win together or lose together. How can measures or instruments look like to foster collaboration on the shop floor? I think of stand-ups, for example, daily stand-ups where the team is coming together, but probably you have other ideas how you can foster that. Yeah, I think a couple things from a measure standpoint, I think really adopting your internal customers' metrics as your own. Maybe not wholesale, but maybe some things that really matter. And that puts you in a perspective of understanding what your internal customer, whoever your work product is being delivered to, what they take to be successful. So as an example, the spare parts department that is responsible for having the spare parts to repair equipment and making sure that people have access to them. Their internal customer are the maintenance technicians that maintain the equipment. And so, you know, I've worked with teams that say, okay, we want the spare parts department to adopt the metric of uptime. It's like, well, we can't control that, right? We can't control when it goes down or how long it takes to fix it. 
It's like, sure, but that's what your internal customer cares about. And so if you commit yourself to contributing to their metric performance, you will automatically do a much better job of looking past your boundaries and adopting an internal customer perspective. And this particular team that I'm thinking of really worked on one of the solutions that came out of that thought process was how do we get the high use spare parts closer to the point of activity? Because that helps speed the uptime. And so it changed the perspective to adopt your internal customer's mindset. We'll also do things where we just have team members go and spend time, whether it's through interviews, whether it's through sort of almost internships with their internal customer. I'm going to go and really put myself in your shoes. Again, interview process, mini internships, just showing up a lot can do a lot. Huddles are one way to show up. As an example, a factory training manager, he would every quarter, he would go to all of the other internal departments at the factory and ask on a scale of one to five, how are we doing at delivering value? And he made it a conversation, not this sort of static, you know, fill out a Google survey chart. He would make it a conversation because he would get feedback and he would almost never get a five, right? Because there was always some complaint, but he would get feedback around how he's serving his internal customer. And that changed his metrics, that changed how he looked at his work. And he said, I'm not going to define success on my own. I'm going to define success based on what the organization truly needs. So those are things that can help elevate the need to collaborate, the value of collaboration in a site. Takeaway number two, collaboration is important to solve problems and probably much more important than speed. Yes. Let's go to the third topic. So the third topic is coaching. And I could have embedded this as a chapter in the role of the leader. And what probably, I think in one of my early outlines, I probably did, but I extracted it as an entire section. And the reason is, I think it's the most important ingredient to improving coaching or to improving problem solving. And the reason is, is that we have every person, every individual is different in the journey they've had as a human being and their problem solving how they grew up, the household they grew up in, what barriers they faced, what their educational background was, who they trained with when they started at the, at the company. All sorts of things affect how we think about problems, what capabilities we bring around problem solving. And along the way, I believe, you know, some people, everybody has different strengths and has different weaknesses around problem solving. The coach can customize that growth process. Uh, rather than just treat everybody the same as if this is the first time they're learning how to solve problems, I mean, training is great for that. Like we're going to switch from one software tool to a different software tool. Great. You've never used this before. We're going to train everybody. You're all starting from the same place. But problem solving, that's not true. We're not all starting from the same place. We have been doing it all our lives. And so I believe coaching is important for two reasons. One, We all need a different learning journey to improve our problem solving. And so coaching can meet the human being where they are and help them do that. Second, I believe we only learn to get better at problem solving through practice. And that requires lots of iterations. And you can't fake that in the classroom. You can do your best to simulate it. You can do your best to, I'll say, make up some problems and practice them in the classroom. But It requires complexity and facing reality and doing it under the pressures of everything else. And so that can't happen through training. It happens through coaching. And so I'll say the third thing, which isn't why it's important, but why I talk about it is that through some very large data sets of leadership capabilities, 
looking across many, many companies over decades of time, coaching as a leadership capability is empirically and consistently rated very low. So we don't naturally coach well, which means if it's important, it's not just about prioritizing, it's about developing our coaching capability, which is why I wanted to say a lot about how we develop our coaching capability. So we learn to coach in a better way. And when you talk with companies, when you work with your clients, what is the blind spot you discover? Because as you said, somehow coaching sounds like a no-brainer. So we know that we need to teach somebody before he's able to conduct something, before he's able to work for me, for example. But on the other hand side, I understand that you see some blind spots and we have to fix them. So if we take it to your experience, to real life, what do you suggest your clients? How do you help them? Yeah, so I think the biggest blind spot is that we confuse coaching with sharing our experience, which to me is a form of training. Here's what I've learned. Let me share with you what I would do. Well, that's just a form of training. That's sharing the information that I've already earned and giving that information to somebody else. Coaching is about helping somebody else's learning journey. And so leaders go through at any level and they drop little pearls of wisdom in conversations thinking they're acting as a coach. So the real litmus test is I'll, sometimes I'll just ask somebody, sometimes I'll ask, actually ask them to pull up their calendar and say, show me on your calendar where you're coaching. And most people can't. They can't show me where they're coaching. So one of my favorite practices, in, especially in a manufacturing environment, is to build in structural, what I call after-class time. And what this usually looks like is there is some kind of huddle, whether it's a team huddle that's daily, whether it's a weekly you know, quality huddle, looking at defects at the end of line or, or site-wide huddle. But let's just say it's a 15-minute huddle. Build in to everybody's schedule an extra 15 to 30 minutes. At least that means that there's nowhere, as soon as that huddle's over, there's nowhere that somebody has to go. There's no next meeting right after that huddle. Now, let's just say you have a 10-person huddle. I might only grab one or two people to stay after class. But we might talk about a problem that's occurring. We might talk about what problems are moving forward. Which ones are we stuck on? And then during the huddle, I can say, okay, well, you and you stay after class and let's talk about that. You're not trying to squeeze coaching into a busy day. You've sort of already blocked it off. You can let the other eight people go, go back to your operations, go back to your areas, go back to whatever else you have to work on. But you and you stay and let me coach you through the work and the challenges that you're facing. So this way, you're closely connected in time and to the proximity of the problem itself because it comes right out of the huddle. And you don't have to find time to coach. You've built it into the daily and weekly structure, and you can identify that moment where coaching can be beneficial in the huddle right then and there. So some version of that after-class process I find really valuable to embed a time commitment a time allocation to actually doing the coaching. And so that's a, the blind spot that we can just do it on the fly without planning our time. That's what's often missed. Wow. Takeaway number three. And I will do that after the podcast. Open your outlook, go into your calendar and take a look if there's coaching time. If there's none, you should block something. Let's continue with the next topic. So the next topic is the role of the leader. And so a lot of leaders at, at all sorts of levels will send their team to problem-solving training and then just expect it to get better. 
But where's the time, just to the point around coaching, where's the time allocated to do coaching? Have we helped prioritize the right problems? Have we helped frame what the boundary conditions are of what they can do and what they can't? And so leaders, I think, they think about this just around, I've done my job when I've given someone the direction to do problem solving. And that's a very narrow view of what needs to happen. So beginning part of this, one of the roles of the leader is managing the problem landscape. This is looking at all the sources of problems. Where do they come from? How do we look at them all together as a landscape? And how do we prioritize within that? So let's take a, a manufacturing floor. Let's say I'm running the machining department that feeds the assembly department. Well, I've got my own signals from what the equipment and the operators are telling me. I've got my metrics. That's another component. What metrics are green and which ones are red? I've got my customer, my internal customer telling me things. I've got my boss telling me about things that they see that they want to have improved. And so I've got all these, and maybe even my in, email inbox, which has another source of stuff coming at me. How do I take all those different pieces of data and decide which are problems, which are not, which ones we're going to work on first, second, and third? Well, that's the problem landscape. And, you know, it's really hard for teams to do that without a structure, without some, you know, heuristics or rules that tell them which ones are more important. And so what happens is some of those get ignored. Maybe the internal customer gets ignored. Maybe the metrics get ignored. Maybe what's happening right here in front of us is getting ignored because we've burdened the people at the front line with lack of clarity of prioritization. So that's the job of the leader is to provide that clarity, to provide that structure that says, here's how, when you're overburdened with too much stuff to go fix, here's how we decide. So that's one example of the role of the leader. Another one that I find really important is that, you know, most leaders get promoted, which means their comfort zone was the previous level. So let's say I'm leading a team of process engineers, and I used to be a process engineer. And so I like to go fix their problems. Let me go figure out what the big ones are and go jump in and roll up my sleeves and do that. But that's that process engineer's problem to solve. And what the leader is not doing is solving the problems that they own. So if they own, if they have five process engineers and each of those have five problems, the process engineering manager thinks that they have 25 problems. But really, they should be looking at those 25 problems and say, what are the problems that we have as a team? And that could be that, oh, the, the operations is not giving us good information so we can do our problem solving well. So let me go work on that structural problem. Or we don't have the right tools to enable simulation of solutions for our process engineering. So I'm going to go work on that problem. Or we don't have the capabilities to solve these problems. So I'm going to work on that problem. But looking at their team and their problem solving and saying, what's going well, what's not, and what new problem statements do I need to own? So many leaders do what we call drop-down problem solving, which is going to solve their team's problems rather than using their team's problems to inform them about what problems they should be solving to move their team forward. Which techniques do you see to improve this leadership skills? So one is coaching. <laughs> Again, come back to that because I think you have to figure out what are you going to fix first, second, and third. But I think the first is basically direct observation, meaning going to see how your team is working. How are they deciding? How are they prioritizing? How are they working through their problems? And when you do direct observation, 
You have to go in without judgment, without assumptions. You have to have a clean slate and be curious and really go in with a learner's mindset. And so I think the very first thing is really just observe your team doing their work, doing their problem solving, and see what's working and what's not, and be curious as to why. And then you will see that just another problem solver who's willing to roll up their sleeves is not going to be the best path forward. That's very rarely the right answer. You will see what the team is struggling with and what's going well and what's not. And this should really inform the leader as to where they can have a positive impact on their team whether it's, you know, build a structure, build prioritization or focus on coaching or free up time or whatever that might be. But go and observe your team, understand how they're getting this work done or not getting it done, and then find the high leverage intervention that you can make as a leader. And how often do you see average, mediocre leaders? And how often do you see great, superior leaders? So it's a broad spectrum, right? So I've seen many really, really bad bosses and I've had bad bosses. I had one that was uh, one of the worst bosses I've ever seen. Also seen great, great bosses and managers and leaders. I don't know if I know about the distribution. To me, the real metric is, are you improving? I think the expectations that, you know, you're a super worker, you become a supervisor and you're just going to be great at it is way too high an expectation. Just like you were a divisional president, then you became a CEO and you're automatically going to be great at it. That still requires learning and growth because it's a very different role. So to me, the real separation is, are you continuing to learn and grow and improve as a leader? And so that's how I separate, not are you great today, but are you on a path? Are you improving to become better for tomorrow? Because even if you were perfect for today, Whether the conditions change or your role changes, automatically you won't be perfect for tomorrow. So that's really how I separate it is, are you approaching your role as a leader from a learner's mindset and are you continually investing in yourself to improve? And I think too often companies don't set that expectation and don't enable it. We don't give people budgets to go take their own courses or give them time to go learn and take courses or get coached or whatever that might be. So companies can help. You can't make somebody a learner, but you can set the conditions that encourage leaders to continue to improve themselves and not just expect them to be perfect because we gave them the job. Takeaway number four, never stop learning as a leader and reflect on your impact to your team. Would you summarize it like that? Yes, I think that's a great way to summarize it is if we go on vacation, is the team better off or worse off? <laughs> This is good as well. <laughs> What's our impact on our team? Are we really lifting them up and helping them move forward or are we a burden and friction point? Jamie, it was super inspiring to talk with you. I learned a lot. I will try to bring some of your ideas and suggestions to real life and implement them in my work. As a closing question, I would like to get your vision on how people will solve problems 10 years from now. How will that look like? Well, I think as we have you know, automation and smarter tool sets and you know, more software, things like that, some of the things that really take up a lot of our time today may be solved or at least that burden reduced. And so I do believe that we are going to need more people to solve more problems. Work is going to get more complex and it's going to change more frequently as needs change and as we evolve and innovate. 
And so having problem solving capabilities at the frontline level and at all levels is going to be super important. So building more coaches, deliberately building more coaches in manufacturing organizations who are easily accessible for the people that need the coaching, I believe is the first ingredient. And the second ingredient is allowing the time and rewarding the effort of people working on problems from a learner's mindset. So it's really hard to do well if, if you aren't allocated the time. So creating that time for people to go do the work right and really rewarding that is going to be an important structural element for manufacturing going forward. Jamie, thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. See you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening and we hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and resources at operationsone.com. This episode is brought to you by Operations One. Operations One is the leading platform to bring operations to a new level of excellence. By supporting frontline operations from planning to execution to analytics, companies benefit from an empowered workforce, increased operational excellence and future-proof operations. Visit operationsone.com for more information.